Before I begin my main topic tonight, I thought I'd give you a little cosmological update. Because, uh, you know, we all live in this universe, and it's good to know uh, what's going on. I've been reading a book called You Are Here by a man named Potter. And the latest estimate is that there are 100 billion galaxies in the universe. It's a little intimidating to uh, think of that, but 100 billion galaxies, and uh, this is not solar systems, it's galaxies. And uh, we're in a medium-sized one in a cluster of galaxies called the local group, local to you-know-who. Uh, and the other big, there's, there are two big galaxies in our cluster, the Milky Way and Andromeda. And in about three billion years, uh, Andromeda and Milky Way will collide. And a billion or so years after that, the two black holes in the center of each of these universes will combine into a super black hole. So, that just thought I'd update you and <laughs> let you know what, what's in store. Where will, where, where, where will you be then? I don't know. <laughs> it's going to suck big time. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to go against all good common sense and talk about religion and politics tonight, actually politics and spirituality. Just uh, say a few things. I'd like to leave ample time for some discussion because this is Berkeley and uh, <laughs> I know people have opinions, you know. <laughs> but um, a number of years ago, I, on May 1st, May Day, I went to my local bookstore, diesel bookstore on College Avenue, and they were closed for the day, and they had on their door this sign written, and it's a, a statement by Gary Snyder, the poet. Let's drink a toast to all those farmers, workers, artists, and intellectuals of the last 100 years who, without thought of fame or profit, whose motivations were compassionate and humanita humanitarian, worked tirelessly in their dream of a worldwide socialist revolution, who believed and hoped that a new world was dawning and that their work could contribute to a society in which one class does not exploit another, where one ethnic group or one nation does not try to expand itself over another, and where men and women live freely as equals. What we have now is nervous third-world fundamentalism and developed-world global greed. The failure of socialism is the tragedy of the 20th century, and on this day, May Day at least, we should honor the memory of those who struggled for the dream of what might have been and begin a new way again. I was very moved by that. Uh, I know a lot of people... Uh, older people that, of my parents' generation who were involved in that struggle. And it was done out of a great, compassionate, visionary sense of what, might, what the world might be like and how there may be an alternative to the situation that we have currently. And then, in 1993... The Dalai Lama appeared at UC Berkeley at Zellerbach, and he was interviewed by Robert Scheer, who was the head of the journalism department at the time. And the Dalai Lama was talking about when he was younger and living in Lhasa still, and he went to visit Beijing at the invitation of the Chinese government. And he hung out with them for a few weeks, and you know they did some negotiations. And the Dalai Lama said, you know, I don't, I don't know how they could call, call themselves communists or socialists. He said, just the way 
the, the government was set up and the way people were treated. And he said, uh, it wasn't, wasn't working. And then he, uh, to the shock of the audience, he said, personally, I think of myself as half Buddhist, half Marxist. It was, it was quite a statement, you know. I mean, who would have, the Dalai Lama, who would have imagined that he actually had some sympathy with Marxism, you know, which is kind of a dirty word in our, in our society, socialism, Marxism. I mean, right now you're hearing a lot of uh, talk about it, you know. The, Obama's a socialist, he's a communist, he's going to take everything and distribute it, you know. Um, uh, but it was really, really interesting to, to hear that from the Dalai Lama. And I've heard people talk about the Buddha taking his followers out into the forest and uh, living pretty much communally. Uh, you know, nobody really uh, accumulating anything um, more than what your, your fellow monks had. Um, living on a pretty much a subsistence level. The Dalai Lama has said, by the way, you know, his religion is kindness. His economics is sufficiency. Maybe humanity is just not evolved enough to have a good working socialist world. I interviewed Allen Ginsberg way back in 1985. He had just gone to China uh, to teach Western beatnik poetry to the Chinese. He said, this was in The Inquiring Mind, it is ironic that Chairman Mao tried to eliminate Buddhism and the bodhisattva practices in China, which is precisely what could have made their socialism work. Then he said, maybe the role of Westerners will be to reintroduce the essential form of meditation to China. There's an idea, a Peace Corps of meditation teachers going to China. But what Ginsburg is saying, what I think the Dalai Lama was saying, is that what we really need is a change of consciousness. If we're going to live in a peaceful, equitable, just society, we really need to do it one person at a time. And that has to be part of it, is a shift of consciousness. So that we learn how to act and behave and live out of a mind of compassion and cooperation uh, and sympathy, empathy, to realize that we're all in this together and to step out of that mind that is aggressive and uh, competitive. You know, I mean, we've, we've lived so long believing that competition is good. That's what we want because that makes uh, for growth, makes for increasing wealth. Uh, but maybe we've hit the limit of that. Consider the theory behind uh, our modern economic system. I always get a kick out of this. Adam Smith, you know, the father of modern capitalism, said an economy works best when everyone looks out for their, quote, enlightened self-interest. Unfortunately, most capitalists are not enlightened, you know, so. Of course, there's the old joke. Communism is the exploitation of man by man. Capitalism is just the reverse. <laughs> so, the beauty of Dharma practice is, I think, one of, the, one of the great benefits of Dharma practice, aside from being able to calm your own mind and see yourself more clearly is that compassion arises almost as an automatic 
side effect of, of meditation. When you begin to see your own confusion and frailty and be able to embrace yourself uh, and, and that confusion and frailty, you start to realize that everybody is stuck and you really start to have compassion for others. Uh, it really is a, a practice of joining us together in, in understand, a mutual understanding. Because what we see in our minds when we sit and meditate is our common story. You know, we're all together caught in a particular moment of history, in a particular moment of biological evolution with a particular kind of brain and consciousness. So the understanding of ourselves grows with our understanding of others and compassion can be found. When I was teaching with Ramdas a number of years ago, uh, he insisted that we put uh, George Bush on the altar, a picture of George Bush on the altar, and Dick Cheney. We had, had them up there. It's sort of understanding that none of us, nobody's to blame. Nobody really is to blame. Everybody's stuck in their own narrative, you know, their own conditioning. Also, another benefit of meditation in creating a different society, and, and a benefit that uh, is so necessary right now, is that we begin to feel ourselves as biological beings as part of Earth life, as connected to the other parts of life of this planet. It's, it's a kind of deep ecology practice, I think, meditation. You really feel yourself as a living being, as a breathing being. And uh, it starts to change your relationship to other beings, not just other humans, but all, all other living beings. And I think it leads to a treatment treating the environment differently. For one thing, your carbon footprint is lessened because you're spending a few hours a day just sitting still. <laughs> carbon, carbon's getting such a bad rap, you know. It's really a great thing, carbon. You're mostly carbon. You know, I mean, talk about a carbon. Every, every step you take is a carbon footprint. And uh, carbon is so wonderful because it, it uh, bonds with thousands of other kinds of uh, elements and molecules. And um, somebody called it the duct tape of life. <laughs> life would not exist without carbon. Just, just remember that one, you know. You're thinking about your carbon footprint. Um, another thing that I think is essential is that we find different kinds of satisfaction than the, the ones that are promoted in our society, uh, which is mostly about consumption consuming experiences, consuming products, uh, continually uh, something new to desire. You're, you're continually not, uh, you're, you're not sufficient unless you own particular things. This is uh, Mahatma Gandhi. I do not believe that a multiplication of wants and machinery contrived to supply them is taking the world a single step nearer to its goal. I wholeheartedly detest this mad desire to destroy distance and time and to increase animal appetites and go to the ends of the earth in search of their satisfaction. If modern civilization stands for all this, and I have understood it to do so, I call it satanic. Is this the way we want to live? This place, this way we are living now. 
Is this the kind of society we want? Can we afford this kind of society? I recently saw Jimmy Carter uh, on TV. He's uh, promoting a new book. Remember back in the 70s? I don't know if some of you look old enough to remember back in the 70s, or too old to remember back in the 70s, one or the, one or the other. Uh, I, I remember him going on TV with, uh, dressed in his cardigan sweater and telling everybody to turn down their heat and uh, you know that we had to live with less. And Jerry Brown was doing the same thing as governor of California. You know, uh, We have to learn how to live with, with less. Back in, the, in, I think it was 1973 or so, we had a little bit of uh, energy. We called it the energy crisis. You, you remember? You could only get gas uh, every other day. You could only buy gas every other day, depending on whether your license plate ended in an odd or an even number. I was glad to say I was odd. But the whole uh, idea, you know, the whole thrust of that period was we're going to have to change, you know. There was a movement, an environmental movement, called voluntary simplicity. Unfortunately, not enough people volunteered. So now, you know, we have this recession, a compulsory simplicity, perhaps, you could call it. Uh, but is this totally a bad thing? I mean, there's a lot of pain out there. I, I totally understand that. And I... And I I feel bad for people who had great expectations about their livelihoods and their, their occupations. But as a society, maybe this is necessary. This is what we need. We, we won't do it, uh, you know, voluntarily unless perhaps we understand that it doesn't make us happy. When are we going to learn that? When are we going to get it? that consumption is not the answer to our, our uh, hungers. Back in the 70s, uh, I was on the radio, and a friend of mine and I, we wrote this commercial. I'll read you a little bit of it. Are you worried about the energy crisis? Disgusted with high utility bills? Fed up with being an energy victim? Then take control of your life today and make your home energy self-sufficient with U.S. Adams Home Nuclear Reactor. Small enough to fit into your abandoned fallout shelter, yet powerful enough to power your major home appliances, including your washer, dryer, stove, refrigerator, freezer, microwave, waffle iron, toaster, coffee maker, mixer, blender, food processor, crock pot, electric wok, electric knife, knife sharpener, can opener, popcorn popper, cheese grater, meat slicer, dishwasher, garbage disposal, track, trash compactor, electric broom, vacuum cleaner, water heater, hot tub, sauna, water pick, electric toothbrush, alarm clock, AM/FM radio, tape deck, turntable to amplifier, color TV, VCR, electric lights, and your automatic garage door opener. Your home nuclear reactor comes fully equipped with a lightweight plastic containment vessel and easy-to-follow emergency instructions in case of a mini-meltdown. If you order today, you'll receive free directions on how to assemble a home-sized atom bomb out of your leftover nuclear wastes, enabling you to become a dominant military power in your very own neighborhood. But I bet, I bet how many of you had most of those electric powered items. We have gotten used to uh, a lot of consumption. A lot of consumption. How do we change? What do we, what do we need? Joanna Macy. There is no technological fix, no magic bullet that can save us from the population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, pollution, species extinction, we're going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us in our global economy. That's one thing we learn in meditation. That it can be very sweet. That it can be the highest happiness, as the Buddha talked about. Peace of mind, 
to be still. To not, not to run out and try to satisfy your latest desire, but to calm the desire wheel in your, your own mind. That that's real satisfaction, that's real happiness. And so, you know, if we can find another source of pleasure and happiness, maybe we will be less reluctant to give up our toys and learn how to live more simply. I mean, the philosophers, the Greeks, the Romans, the Asian, the Hindus, the Taoists, they all say it. Simplicity. Simplicity. Keep the mind simple. Keep your life as simple as possible. It's too confusing otherwise. I suggested, uh, I, I did a, a show at uh, Berkeley Rep a few months ago where I suggested that the United States resign as a superpower. <laughs> that um, it's kind of what's happening anyway. So if we make it an intention, you know, we can do it with consciousness. And, and this doesn't mean, you know, I heard this morning on the radio this, this author uh, saying, I love the American Republic. I love this country. I don't like American imperialism. I don't like America going and taking the resources of, of the planet and, and, you know, having this consumption level that is, you know, so out of whack. Just like in our country, uh, you know, the, the wealth, the distribution of wealth is so out of whack. It's like that for, between America and the rest of the world. But those, kind of, those are the kinds of things, you know, we, we, we can't really grapple with them very, very much. What we can do is personally become more conscious in the way we live. And I also, you know, I mean, this, I, I thought quite a bit about whether I should talk about this tonight. I think that, I think we can raise this question. Is this the kind of society we want to be living in? And are there al- alternative ways of distributing wealth and, and running an economy? Just a couple more things before I open it up for some discussion. Uh, you know, it's crazy out there in the political world, and now, you know, we have elections coming up, and, you know, you listen to the commercials, and it's, you know, it's not an intelligent uh, discussion going on. Um, I think, though, if we, if we want to change things, we really have to maintain a degree of perspective and realize that, you know, societies go through these phases. And I think we're going through a big transition moment. And I think we can have hope. I think we can have hope that things will change for the better. Um, I'll read you something from, well, I'll read you this. All parts of the earth are trampled, full of commerce. Fields drive back the forests. Even rocks are cultivated. Swamps are drained. Today's towns outnumber yesterday's houses. Everywhere are residences, peoples, governments, life. And this, above all, proves humans' drastic growth. We so clog the universe, it can barely support us. And as our needs increase, we struggle with each other for them, and nature fails us. That was written by the Roman historian Tertullian in 150 A.D. So, you know, this happens. It's a cyclical thing. Empires rise. And they fall or slide, you know. And the Romans, I bet during the fall of, of the Roman Empire, a lot of Roman citizens didn't even notice it was happening. And then 
a few centuries later, they started calling themselves Italians. They're doing fine today. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily apocalyptic what's going on. But it definitely, there's definitely a big change. And I think we can also draw hope from an even bigger perspective, like a deep time ecological perspective. You know, life has survived lots of big upheavals, ice ages and continents bumping into each other and, you know, Dick Cheney, you know. I mean, life has survived a lot of of upheaval. Uh, so there's, there's cause for optimism and hope. And I think we have to act out of those spaces of, of, of having some perspective. And a good sense of humor helps. And to be in touch with wonder, to be in touch with the awe of just being alive that you feel every time you sit down and, and know that you're breathing and that there's awareness there. And I mean, it's a mystery. It's a great mystery. And it's, you can touch that mystery at any moment, just sitting down. Your senses open, your awareness awake. It's uh, some rare moments in our ontological history, considering that maybe we, you know, there was no, we were nothing up until our birth, and, and after our death for eternity, there'll be nothing. That, you know, this is a rare moment. So enjoy it, taste it. Let me read you one more quote before I open this up a little bit. It is neither wealth nor splendor that leads to happiness. It is tranquility and service to others. That's not the Dalai Lama. That's Thomas Jefferson. You know, the guy who said, we hold these truths. A great insight. Tranquility and service to others. So, I'm expecting some intelligent discussion, calm and intelligent. Does somebody want to run this? Run the, run the, uh, did, does somebody run the mic? Is that what happens? Well, we kind of pass it around these days. Okay. There's, a, there's somebody back over here. You, you mentioned Dick Cheney, and I have a question. Um, I don't have much respect for Dick Cheney, but I do believe that he is quite an intelligent person. So my question is, how is it possible to be so intelligent and yet have such a deficit in consciousness? <laughs> Well, I, I don't know that uh, I would call it a deficit of consciousness. I think that maybe he, I think he truly believes that the best way for the world to move would be for uh, government to get out of people's lives and for, you know, those who deserve best uh, or those... Those who are smartest and most uh, capable rise and, you know, uh, get all that they, they deserve. And those who don't, it's, I don't, I think it's a belief system rather than a lack of uh, consciousness. Although you, you did mention that when you meditate, um, presumably your consciousness rises and with that comes compassion. So I don't, I don't see much compassion in Dick Cheney and his ilk. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I can't, I can't judge. I mean, you know, I, I guess I was a little dismissive, uh, you know, but uh, I mean, you know, he's, he's, he has a heart, or half a heart anyway. Uh, yes, 
family. He's, he's, you know, he probably, people love him. And there are people who love him. I don't know. I, I, that's, that's the only thing I can say. Others. Do you ever, does anybody ever talk about socialism? You do? Berkeley. Oh, you're English. You actually have a party, right? A socialist party, right? Hmm? There used to be, right? Labor, right? Labor is, yeah. There's some. There's somebody back there. Oh, you're next. Well, I had a couple of things pop up in, in my mind. Um, uh, oh boy, I'm on the spot. Wow, <laughs> it all went out of my mind. Um, thank you. Um, I guess the first thing I wanted to say is I, I don't. I don't think that people are incapable of a socialist way of being. I think that most people that I've ever met are actually really capable of it. I think we live in a world where there are structures that don't represent or reflect at all what most people have in their hearts or what most people would want for themselves. And I appreciate the talk about voluntary simplicity. And I know the challenge I find is I'm living with a set of um, sort of structures and demands that require me to be places at times to participate in ways that, frankly, I don't really want to. Mm-hmm. But if I want a roof over my head and food on my table, there are certain things that I'm sort of obligated to do if I'm to participate at all, even to do something good for our culture or society. And um, I think that um, what happens is that there are people with good intentions, like people who want to spread socialism. And um, then I think there are people who are motivated by very different interests who, for whatever reason, they're smart, they're cunning, they're whatever they are, somehow have a way of getting control of things. I don't know how they do that. Uh I I have a sister who's exactly like that. And I'm I'm not kidding. I grew up with this woman. and And there are people who just have this way of, I don't know how they do it. They just get control of stuff. And then their agenda, even though it's not representative of everybody's, mm-hmm. kind of runs the show. And mm-hmm. so how do we deal with that? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, but that was very well spoken, you know, that, that there are a lot of people capable of, or, or even desirous of living in a different way, but the structures of society and the institutions are so in, encrusted in a particular form, that, or built in a, such a particular form that it'd be hard to... It's hard to change them or to, do, to work outside of the system in any way. I think a major problem is the media, which, never, which, doesn't, which is uh, run by people who are selling time to companies who want you to be in desire. I mean, you watch television, you hear, you know, the, it, it is a a self-perpetuating system. You don't, you're never told that there's an alternative to this. You know, it just, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't appear in your mind space, in your, in, your, in your cultural life, and so nobody thinks that it's possible. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, go, uh, go ahead as long as you're sitting right there. No, go ahead. Go ahead, give it to him, and then then it will go back to you guys. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> all right, I can hear myself now. <laughs> Your talk made me think a lot about uh, Julia Butterfly Hill spent some time here a couple weeks ago, and uh, I work in mental health, and she said something that's sort of stuck with me for the last couple weeks, and I'm wondering if it ties in with sort of what you were just talking about. Um, she talked about how... Uh, all the pain and suffering in the world and the things that we do to the world are a reflection of how we feel about ourselves on the inside. And in your discussion just briefly a few seconds ago about the media and about how we treat our planet and Dick Cheney and things like that, I I can't help but think that um, our inability to love ourselves in the way that our culture reinforces that 
that, that there's something wrong with us leads to that desire and leads to that, that sort of cyclical relationship we have with our willingness to sort of put our, our beliefs about treating the environment and things on the back burner because we're in so much pain ourselves living mm-hmm. in this world. Mm-hmm. And so that relationship to me is really troubling, and I think um, our society <clears throat> sort of discouraging people from loving themselves and from loving, focusing primarily on on themselves as people and not the things that they have and the things that define them. I don't think things can get better until people start to recognize the beauty of loving yourself. That's wonderful. Yes, that's a wonderful statement. I, I think that's a key thing that happens in meditation is that you do learn to embrace yourself. Uh, you know, it, it, it is a process of, of learning. I think Buddhism can be said to be a process of learning to embrace and love yourself. And we have a tendency as mammals to compare ourselves anyway. That's sort of a, a default position of the brain that you're kind of always judging yourself in comparison to where other people are at. And the media keeps giving us these images of perfection and, you know, happy people bouncing around with all their products. And we all feel really, really insufficient in comparison. I think it's, a, it's an insidious process of making us all feel like we aren't su- su- successful. We aren't, uh, you know... Something's wrong with us because we're we're not don't have all that or we aren't happy, you know. I mean, happily ever after is is the dream, and it's just outrageous that people think they have to be happy. I wrote that in my notebook. You don't have to be happy. <laughs> it was such a relief. <laughs> I felt happier than I've felt in a long time when I wrote that. But. But anyway, I really think that that's, that, that, that's really a key, uh, is that invidious comparison. Who was it? Thorsten Veblen, famous economist of uh, the early, mid-20th century, talked about invidious comparison, how that really runs this, uh, this economy. I mean, what a, they're talking about these tax cuts. You know, if you're if you're making over $250,000 a year, then, you know, then you're rich or something. $250,000, I, I, I don't, I, I dream of $250,000 a year. All right, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, I'm following the Dalai Lama on Facebook now, which you know, many of you may be doing. Is he tweeting? He has, he has little uh, missiles that go out every day. It's a paragraph long, and they're very wonderful, and they're very accessible. So the other day he said, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or the Buddha. It doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is, do you respect the people around you? Are you living your life in a way that you're responsible for your actions? You know, it's about what you do. It's not about what you believe. Mm-hmm. And so that got me thinking about the phrase, a finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. And I love that phrase. And I was thinking about it in terms of um, everybody fighting about religions. And I was thinking, if you know, if you just looked at people's actions and didn't care what was going on in their mind, what they chose to believe in or didn't choose to believe in or what they were brought up with or not brought up with, but you just looked at like... Uh, Mother Teresa picking people up out of the gutter and and caring for them at her hospice her whole life. You know, you just looked at what people did. It would become very clear what we need to do. And and, and then just briefly, in terms of politics, I was thinking the way that I know who I want to represent me is something I started years ago where I just look at their voting record. I stop listening to all the jabbering Uh out there and you can find it very easily, and you can see how they vote on the environment and on different people's rights and on all kinds of things. And you just go to the League of Women Voters or many, many, many sites, and you decide who, who is going to represent your worldview. 
So it just becomes a lot simpler than all the name calling and mm-hmm. you know all the refereeing and this this horse race that they seem to be wanting us to get involved in. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's a good. That's a good suggestion. Religion. I, it's really a matter of name, isn't it? It's just a matter of the names for God. I, I have uh, this vision that someday the heavens will part and we'll hear this booming voice. Humans, you all got my name wrong. And I forgive you. Yeah, that's true. Yes, please. Well, I would take us in a slightly different direction. Uh, Something I think about a lot right now is that even I happen to work for the city of Berkeley where everyone has the very best of intentions. (laughs) And uh, they really think that they're very good. And their intentions are really good. They're not Dick Cheney. And yet there's something about large organizations and bureaucracies and hierarchies and what rises to the top. And frankly, uh, there are moments that I feel utterly unhopeful (laughs) because these are our old socialists and our good, well-meaning people. And, Uh you know, unbelievable. Just make you... Really put your compassion to the test, I have to tell you. Uh, uh, I could put some people's pictures on my little uh, altar, and I'm not big enough yet to embrace some of them. The foolishness, the hierarchicalness. I think we don't have skills, really. I, I don't know what kind of skills we really need, but I don't think we really have them for how to run things in a humane kind of a way. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think you maybe uh, touched on something that, w- that I think is, is pretty uh, important, and that is scale, and that things are, there's too much, there's too many people. First of all, there's too many of us. I mean, humans have really overpopulated the planet. Uh, and, uh, I mean, that's, the, our impact on the environment is, has a great deal to do with the fact that there's been too much. And nobody ever talks about population anymore. Back in the 60s, we, people were talking about it, but you never hear it mentioned as, I mean, and we're at 6.5 billion or something, and we're headed for 10 billion by the middle of the... It's, it's unsustainable, totally unsustainable. I think the people who wrote the Bible got God's message wrong. It wasn't go forth and multiply. It was go forth and add. <laughs> But, but I think I think the size. I think the, for instance, I think the size of the government, of the U.S. government, is just way too big, and we have that decentralizing everything is really part of the future. Local, very very local um, decision making, and cooperation, because cooperation can ha- happen on a local level in a different way because you know everybody and and there's a kind of compassion and empathy that grows and I mean what do we know about these people up in Sacramento doing these wild things well reform your job is to reform your department whatever it is Where'd the, where'd the microphone go? It disappeared. Oh, there it is. So, so a couple of things that summarize what's already been said. Um, distraction and dukkha make good consumers, and wisdom is the enemy of commerce. Wisdom is the enemy of commerce. Okay. That's a good, that's a, you should put that on a T-shirt. And sell it. <laughs> right. <laughs> You'll make a lot of money. Yeah. I wanted to uh, speak to the comment earlier. I, I'm not sure who made it, but it was about the kind of goodness that she perceived in many people. Um, and I 
I was thinking that I think recently one of my practices has been um, trying to elicit, well, perceiving and then trying to support that integrity and attention in other people when I see it, because I think it is contagious in the same way that sometimes a lack of integrity is contagious. So I think that um, in thinking about politics, um, thinking about the people around you in your immediate circle and how you can elicit from them and also support all the things that will make them more, um, uh, you know, powerful and confident agents of change in their own life is such a, it's such a satisfying response to um, the mess <laughs> that we can also see at the same time. So you're saying that to, to encourage, when you see virtue and virtuous action, to encourage it and Yeah, and just also it. to, right, and to believe that it's there and to look for it and to, you know, to comment on it or to try and help people pursue it. All, those, mm -hmm. all the ways in which we can be there for other people who are struggling with these kinds of things, I think, are really helpful. Good. I like that. Uh, over here... So it's um, my understanding <coughs> one of the uh, important tenets of Buddhism is not to speak badly about people in public especially. And um, <coughs> so I don't really think that, I mean, if we have a question about Dick Cheney, we should ask him. But to, um, to guess what he would say in public, to me, seems to go against the very nature of <coughs> what it is that we study. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, the other understanding that I have of Buddhism is about... <coughs> Um, before we change the world, we need to focus on changing ourselves. And I, <coughs> from my experience, the, the best way to change ourselves in light of this conversation about the effect of media is to simply turn it off. Mm -hmm. So no one is forcing us to watch television or listen to the radio or read the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, as soon as I stop tuning in to the all media sources, <coughs> my desires for everything diminish considerably. It's very easy to do. Thank you. I, I agree. I, I try to do a media fast every so often because it just really, it really fills the mind with uh, not only desire, but, you know, uh, anger and fear. It's... Uh, it's a sad state because it really is, it is the imagery we, that informs us. And, uh, yeah. but, but, so going, but going a step further, and that is that, that you can start with yourself by, con by turning off the media. I found that uh, if I don't listen to the media for months on end, I haven't lost a thing because it doesn't seem like anything changes. <laughs> so you can turn back the media on in six months and there's still war and famine and hatred. Um, but if you turn it off, like you said, and you have a media fast, um, you're changing yourself, and then you're influencing the people around you. Um, and it, the thing is that if, if people, enough people stop tuning in to these images, the images would change because the, the media is selling us these images because they believe that that's what people want to see and that's what they're getting their revenue from is with the, the numbers of people who are turning in than they can generate as advertising. But you can start by changing that by just not buying their product, which is bad news. That's really what it comes down to, I think, is changing ourselves and living differently and influencing the people we come in contact with with our own goodness and, and calm and our own the happiness that we find from uh, meditation practice and developing ourselves. I mean, that's that's the most influence we'll ever have. And and to me, the most and to me, the simplest thing really is to just lead by example. And you don't have to get out and yell and scream and hit people over the head with it. You live your life the way that you believe is right, and you 
live by example and people will notice. That may be a good place to end. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, here's my small two bits, um, which actually ends up being related to this whole discussion because earlier, you, Wes, you mentioned about that it's important to have hope and looking at the you know, geological time and that will help us to have hope. And I think that another that it's really critical for us to create change in the world to come from that hopeful place. And by simply turning off the media, that helps a lot to help us reconnect with our own hope. Mm -hmm. right? Yes, absolutely. Hope. Well, let's just, uh, let me just read you a little poem end it. This is a poem by William Stafford. It could happen any time. Tornado, earthquake, Armageddon. It could happen. Or sunshine, love, salvation. It could, you know. That's why we wake and look out. No guarantees in this life. But some bonuses, like morning, like noon, like evening, like right now. Let's sit for just a minute. Thanks for your participation. It's nice to be here with you. Don't forget the Inquiring Mind Benefit Party, Saturday, 7.30, North Bray Community Church, this Saturday, dancing. Buddhist dancing. See you on the path somewhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.